Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Scott Iman, uh, who is the author of 20th Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck, and the creation of the modern film studio. Um, and I'm, I'm especially pleased to have uh, Mr. Iman on because I'm a big fan of his John Wayne biography. It's it's uh, uh, exceptionally good if you're looking for something. If you're looking for a biography about a movie star to read, it gives you a good sense not only of Mr. Wayne, but the uh, the the times in which he lived. Uh, Scott is an award-winning author of 16 books and about the movies, three of which have been New York Times bestsellers. Um, and he's a frequent book reviewer for the Wall Street Journal, Film Comment, and the New York Observer. Uh, thank you for, very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, happy to be here, son. Uh, so let's talk about 20th Century Fox uh, and Daryl F. Zanuck. But before we get to Daryl F. Zanuck, let's talk a, a little bit about William Fox, uh, who was the the founder of Fox Studios, which is one of the two studios that merged to form 20th Century Fox. Because what's really interesting about him is that he is not a traditional movie mogul in the sense that we think of these things. He was actually a more of a real estate man, right? He was a theater guy. That was his basic entry into show business. Uh, he opened a Nickelodeon. That was successful, so he opened another Nickelodeon and, and so on down the line. And then eventually he went into production uh, because, as with anybody else who who sits and watches a lot of movies, at some point the thought occurs to you, God, I could make movies that are better than this. <laughs> you know? And it's this exact same thing that Louis B. Mayer did. Uh, he was a le leading exhibitor in New England, and, and he decided to go into production for himself uh, and was extremely successful and formed Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer a few years later. Uh, Fox uh, did the same thing. He started his own production company in 1915, got lucky with Theta Berra, uh, hit a nerve with uh, a sexually aggressive female, which was something new in uh, American culture, actually, not just American movies, but American culture. And uh, I went on from there. But he, he was a New York guy. He would only come to L.A. Uh, once a year under duress. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't like uh, L.A. He didn't uh, wasn't comfortable there. He was essentially a real estate guy. And, and Adolf Zucker, who was one of the founders of Paramount Pictures, was also like that. Luckily, he had Jesse Lasky and Cecil B. DeMille working in the West Coast because they were production guys and they weren't interested in New York, whereas Zucker was essentially a, a real estate guy, a theater guy. And he loved New York. So they were able to balance it off. But Fox uh, uh, stayed almost completely in New York and had to delegate the running of the actual Fox studio to various lieutenants uh, whom he essentially terrorized, mm -hmm. uh, uh, playing uh, 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 Ebenezer Scrooge to several different people who were all terrified of, of being fired and losing their, their sinecure because Fox paid pretty well. And just to keep them guessing, whenever every once in a while he'd give them an unasked for raise, uh, just to keep them totally unbalanced, you know, and then send them more insulting telegrams and night letters. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting to read these these opening chapters because he he does sound like both a terror and also very confusing to work for this uh, oh, William Fox. It would be chaotic. And because he was always wanting to spend less, less and less money, less money, less money. At the same time, he wanted the pictures to be better and better and better. So, and yeah. he didn't really want to pay anybody anything. So it was it, you were being pulled in, in conflicting directions if you were actually trying to run production for William Fox, which meant in practice that you couldn't please him, which I suspect is what he wanted all along. Yeah. Want yeah. anybody to feel they were pleasing him. He wanted to keep them uneasy and terrified. 
Yeah. Well, the combination of being a, uh, a a major theater owner and a studio has its benefits, at least back back then before the Paramount decrees. Right. Because you could create movies that weren't necessarily great, but you, you, you could show them everywhere you wanted because well, you own the theaters. They were vertically inter in, vertically integrated corporations, which meant that you made money on both ends. Uh, you made money from the theater end. You made money on distribution because even if the film actually lost money in terms of what it grossed and its negative cost, distribution still took their 25% or 28%, whatever it happened to be, off the top. Mm -hmm. So you had all these different revenue streams coming in. Whereas after the Paramount decree, when the government said it was, it was an antitrust thing and they had to divest themselves of the theaters, suddenly they lost uh, uh, two separate revenue streams. They lost theaters and they lost distribution. So they had to subsist solely on, on, on production. And at the same time, television lands with both feet. And, and all these guys like Zucker, like, well, Fox was dead by this time. But all these guys came out of, out of a theater, theater. That was actually what was in their blood. Uh, they saw uh, making product, doing production as an evolutionary step. But mm -hmm. they understood real estate uh, every bit as well as, as they understood production. So it was a it was a body blow for them. And then TV lands at the same time. And suddenly they're they're hammered on both ends, you know, because yeah. the audience is simply leached away uh, between 1946 and 1953. Uh, like 40 percent of the movie audience just disappears. Yeah. Starts staying, yeah. You know, and I mean, that's an extinction level event. That's what's happening with newspapers and magazines now. And it's an extinction level event. So uh, and, and they were all at this point in their 60s, too. They were not feisty young guys full of uh, piss and vinegar. Yeah. Uh, so they kind of, uh, some of them were, were basically kicked upstairs. Zucker was kicked upstairs uh, and basically was chairman emeritus. He actually didn't have any power anymore. A mayor got kicked out of MGM uh, because uh, the business cratered. Uh, and by that time, Zanuck was, uh, was, had been ruling Fox since 1935. Yeah. So yeah. He, he wrote out, he wrote out the rough times because he was, aggressive and he came up with cinemascope which uh, provided a uh, effective albeit temporary uh, a shot of adrenaline to the theater business yeah well let's I, we'll come to that in a minute let's let's talk a little bit about daryl f zanuck and his uh his kind of introduction to the world of filmmaking i mean he gets a start at warner's and he is making movies that still today people people are watching and and talking about how you know kind of great and electric they are um talk a little bit about his experience there and and how he wound up at uh 20th century well he started off at, as a writer at warner brothers writing rin tin tin movies uh and he was electric and he was aggressive and he understood that uh, uh, a movie should be like a, a, a row of dominoes. Once you knock over that first domino, all the dominoes start falling. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they're about getting from point A to point Z. And he wanted action. And he expected action. And he thought and the audience shared that essential uh, uh, baseline desire. Uh, and that he started writing other scripts. And he was so prolific and so aggressive that he had to have a couple pseudonyms. Mark Canfield was one. He only used Daryl F. Zanuck for prestige pictures like Noah's Ark, you know, mm -hmm. prestige pictures. And, and Mark Canfield was the name he used. Gregory Rogers was the name he used. I mean, he was churning out eight, 10 scripts a year for Warner Brothers. So he became production head eventually at Warner Brothers in 1928. And uh, that was after sound had roared in. And uh, the early 30s, he basically uh, uh, started hiring people like James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson 
and started making those magnificent uh, gangster pictures that were all about the the, the argot of the streets and violence and sex and uh, all, all those things that uh, a lot of uh, silent movies didn't always deal with directly. Uh, and and uh, he got into a fight with Harry Warner over money, not his. When Roosevelt got elected uh, and took office in early 1933, there was a bank holiday. They declared a bank holiday to stabilize uh, the fiduciary system. And all of the, uh, the, the, uh, the movie studios basically cut everybody's salary by 50% over a certain level of income. And they said they would restore full salaries when the bank holiday was over. So when the bank holiday was over, I think it was three weeks or something. When the bank holiday was over, Harry Warner wanted to push it forward another couple of weeks so he could save the money and, and not pay his people. And Zanuck had promised them that everybody would get their full salaries back. And Harry reneged. So, and, and, and interestingly, Zanuck didn't like Harry. Most people didn't like Jack Warner mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, Jack was kind of a snake. And Harry, you know, came on like, a, like an observant Jew who, who went to Temple and loved his wife and didn't play around. And, and Jack never went to Temple and always played around, you know. Uh, but Daryl liked uh, Jack Warner because what you saw was what you got. And if Jack Warner was going to stab you, he'd probably stab you in the chest as opposed to the back. And he felt Harry had stabbed him in the back by, mm-hmm. by, by violating the word that Zanuck had given the studio. So Zanuck quit. Uh, because, and also, as he, he would later acknowledge, Warner Brothers was a family business and he wasn't in the family. So he started a company called 20th Century Pictures with Joe Schenk, a producer friend of his, who was actually chairman of United Artists at this point. And 20th Century was uh, successful from the get-go. And they did two years at 20th Century. And then Fox was kind of a failing operation by 1935. And uh, they, uh, they merged with Fox because Fox had very good distribution and atrocious pictures. Whereas Zanuck was making uh, excellent pictures and United Artists didn't have great distribution. So it was a, it was a way of, of uh, strength meeting strength. Uh, NET, uh, they moved on to Fox in uh, the summer of 1935. And 20th Century Fox, Fox originally thought the company would be called Fox-20th Century. And Zanuck said that was a deal breaker. <laughs> <laughs> there was no merger if yeah. you take second billing. It just wasn't going to happen. So they backed off and it became 20th Century Fox. And they moved on to the lot in 1935. And uh, luckily, uh, uh, Shirley Temple was there. Uh, and had already started, but it hadn't picked up momentum. But Will Rogers uh, was just about to get killed in a, in a plane wreck. And Will Rogers was the biggest male star on the lot. Xanax mm-hmm. started off with one star who was gaining speed and another star who had uh, uh, tragically gotten himself killed, uh, which put him in a, in a difficult position. But he coped because Xanax always coped. And uh, 20th Century Fox was uh, increasingly successful from the day Xanax walked on the lot. Yeah. The sense I get uh, the sense I get from reading your book is that he had kind of shifted away from the Warner's uh, movies that had made him so successful, the gangster pictures, um, that sort of thing into into uh, the prestige movie. Sure. But also just just kind of more uh, a slightly more toned down cinema. Is that is that right? He had to. He didn't have he didn't have the personnel at 20th Century Fox that he had at Warner's. Uh, uh, Cagney and Robinson and Paul Muni and all the, that group of, of talent, Betty Davis too, they were all tied up with long-term contracts. And you don't just pick up Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson off the street corner. You know, sure. they're, they're one-of-a-kind talents. So Zanuck realized that he couldn't simply replicate what he'd been doing at Warner Brothers because the personnel was different. So he had to reinvent himself and he had to reinvent the kind of movies that he was making or was going to make. 
which he did. He absolutely did. What he found when he got in the lot, what Fox had was a terrible story department and bad production, but they had good directors. They had John Ford. They had Henry mm-hmm. King. They had uh, uh, Borzaghi was still uh, hanging around the lot, Frank Borzaghi. He had very good directors, but you don't give Henry King and John Ford or Frank Borzaghi gangster movies where Jimmy Cagney's slapping girls around. <laughs> That's not who they are. <laughs> so he had, to, he had to recast what he did in a more gentle, more bucolic kind of Americana vein. Because that was he had to play with the strengths of the people he had. Yeah, I, I, can you talk a little bit about uh, about him as not not just as a producer, but also as a creative mind? I mean, I, I one of the things that's very interesting in this, and I, I think you still see this from time to time in the executive suites uh, in Hollywood, but much less so nowadays. Uh, just his ability to go in and pinpoint what's wrong with the story, uh, what what's going wrong in the editing booth, you know, which shot should be used, that sort of thing. He was uh, omnipresent. Uh, the, the, he went over every a, a, script, a first draft script never got produced at 20th Century Fox. It always had to be improved, and it generally was improved, and not just uh, not just using improved as a, as, a, as a synonym for screwing it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would read a script carefully. His notes are almost always on point and borderline brilliant, and he was specific. You know, he said the problem starts on page 36. And here's why the problem starts on page 36, because things started to slow down. Mm-hmm. You see, he understood something profound about movies in that essentially it's narrative and that a story doesn't have to be brilliant. It doesn't even have to make any sense if it's engaging and if it moves fast enough, the audience will accept it because they want to be diverted. Basically, they wanted to have their minds taken off their troubles. And if the story has flair and if the actors are good and, and attractive and, and, and kinetic, uh, you're halfway there. And if you keep the story moving, you're all the way there. So he was always hammering pace and, 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 and sharp dialogue. He wanted – this was a mantra he would repeat over again. And the writers learned that he was almost invariably right. Mm-hmm. that that it, 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 one writer said he had a Geiger counter in his head and it started ticking when things slowed up on a, on the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also, he didn't edit the B pictures. He didn't care about B pictures. Those were the province of Saul Wurzel, a, a subsidiary producer who actually had a different lot. Uh, Zanuck ran Pico, the, the, the lot on Pico Boulevard. Uh, the B pictures were produced at the old Fox lot on Western Avenue in Hollywood. And he didn't mess around with those. Uh, as long as they came in on budget or under budget, he didn't care. But the A pictures, uh, he would take over the editing for most of the A pictures. He would look at the rushes of a given picture and he'd say, well, take three is the best one. And uh, the director would say, well, I thought take five was best. And he said, no, take three because of this, this and this. And his secretary would take down all these notes and those note cutting notes were always followed. You know? mm-hmm. And then he would go through costume tests. Uh, he would look at uh, the first assembly of the film. Basically, he 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 was the midwife for every A picture 20th Century Fox made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, again, it's it's he was the last of the mogul standing, right? I mean, he was kind of the 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 last big early name to to kind of make it through into the the Jack the sixties and seventies. Right? Jack Warner sold out Warner Brothers in nineteen sixty seven. Zan okay. uh, left Fox in nineteen seventy. Uh, afflicted with uh, early case dementia. Yeah, he was. Although you wouldn't have known it, uh, he wouldn't have admitted it ever. But he he was he was getting pretty fuzzy at that point. 
but he was still in the saddle as of 1970. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is, again, reading reading this book and, and just thinking about the career uh, that he had and the, the, the evolution of Hollywood, it, there's almost a technological story as much as anything else here. Because yeah. he lives through sound. Uh, the introduction of color, uh, the introduction of cinemascope, um, and that in particular, I think, is really fascinating. I mean, you have a lot in this in this book about the the way the lenses uh, had to be crafted and how they were uh, the the process that went into it, the advantages of that over some of the others, even though it wasn't uh, it wasn't under patent, which is which is thing. a very strange and unusual thing. That's the funny thing. It was not copied. It had not been patented in America, which meant that anybody could basically borrow one of the cinemascope lenses, take it apart and copy it uh, with impunity. And he couldn't do a thing. But he was the, the, he was so desperate and the business was fought. It was like a parachute had, had not opened. <laughs> the business was just yeah. plummeting to the ground. Uh, and he thought, we have to do something. We have to create. And he didn't think 3D was going to work because it was a gimmick. And mm -hmm. the pictures were lousy. It, with one or two exceptions, he thought 3D uh, was, was pure exploitation. Whereas Cinemascope, you could still make an honest picture. You know, it didn't have, to, it wasn't about uh, uh, paddle balls bouncing in the, in the audience's face. Um, so he thought this was the way to go. And he bet he spent $10 million of the corporation's money on, on, on uh, taking this system, which had been patented in Europe, but the patent had expired and, and ramrodding it through for production. It took about a year, a calendar year from late 52 to, to late 53 when the robe opened. Uh, and by God, it worked. The Robe was a huge hit. How to Marry a Millionaire was a huge hit. All these early Cinemascope pictures were huge hits. Uh, at the same time, he's beginning a process of burning out. Because at this point, he's been running a movie studio between Warner Brothers and Fox. He's been running a movie studio for uh, 25 years. 70-hour uh, weeks normally. 70, 80-hour yeah. weeks. And it's starting to get to him. And he also doesn't like what's happening. He doesn't like the way that actors were assuming more uh, leverage within the Hollywood system. Yeah, really yeah. I mean, that's that's a really that that's a really interesting point too, Kier, because there's there's a huge evolution in the business just in terms of who's getting the money. Yeah. I mean, like there's there's you know, uh, I, I believe the the in in your book you you mentioned his resentment at the fact that people who have no skin in the game are getting profit points. Right. See, Zanuck was not money driven particularly. He got a quarter million dollars a year. Uh, for 10 years and he never asked for a raise particularly i mean he also had a percentage of, mm -hmm. of the corporate profits but he wasn't money driven it was about the craft it was about the job he wasn't one of these guys who just wanted more and more and more every six months uh so when actors started getting increasing leverage in the 50s as the box office fell down and actors started going independent and they found they could make a lot more money getting off the studio payroll and going into independent production or just bartering their services for a little less weekly salary and more of the back end. Uh, A-list stars like Burt Lancaster, Clark Gable, that level of stardom, because they did guarantee a certain level of return at the box office. Uh, and this drove Zanuck nuts because A, they didn't have any creative input. Uh, B, they had no uh, financial input into the picture. They're not, they weren't making any investments in the picture. If they made an investment in the picture, that's another issue. Mm -hmm. uh, but they didn't. So he said, why, why, why would you willingly give them 20% of the net profits when they're not contributing 20% of the budget? Mm -hmm. He thought it was fiscal insanity uh, because they were making more money than he was, <laughs> basically. And yeah. part of it, but also there was, a, there was a certain amount of creative pride that he took in his business that he felt they didn't share. 
Mm-hmm. You know, uh, expl- explain that a little bit. I mean, do you, I mean, do you think it's just a function of the kind of standard resentment that the actors are just reading the words and and that sort of thing, or or was it was it something different? For twenty five years, he'd been telling actors what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the film you're going to do. Uh, we start on June first. We'll finish uh, at the end of July. And at the end of July, you're starting another picture. He was used to giving orders to actors, and actors in turn were used to taking his orders and doing mm-hmm. what he wanted. But a different generation of actors was coming uh, into in play. And instead of uh, essential company men, company men and women, well, Betty Davis was never a company woman, but company mm-hmm. men like Clark Gable, who basically did what they were told mm-hmm. uh, within certain uh, areas, you were getting, you know, a, a Brando and Burt Lancaster and Montgomery Clift. And they had no interest in being company men or women. They wanted to do serious work and they felt they had to take control of the apparatus in order to get mm-hmm. serious work. So there was a basic disagreement about the role of the actor, but on the part of Zanuck and the new generation of actors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of the numbers in here are eye popping, especially when we get to like Cleopatra. I I always forget just how much money uh, was was being thrown around on that that uh, production. Um, Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Daryl Zanuck's relationship with his son, Richard, which I think is is fairly interesting and uh, is the sort of thing that looks like nepotism. You know, at first it looks like kind of a family business. But really, I mean, Richard Zanuck was a legit executive in, on his own right. Uh, he was not he was not just thrown in there he was uh, because he had the right name. No, no, no. He, he learned the business from the ground up. His father insisted on that. Uh, he, he worked in the editing room. He worked in you know production. He did all sorts of things before his father let him produce anything. I mean, Zanuck's first picture is Compulsion, that a courtroom drama about the Leopold Loeb murder case with Orson mm-hmm. Welles playing Clarence Darrow, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a perfectly good picture. It's not, he was a high, and he, the, the problem between Richard and his father was that his father was fine with Richard until Richard started being com- competition. And then it turns into the Shakespearean, uh, 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 un- unspoken Shakespearean battle for supremacy mm-hmm. and ego. Uh, and when, by the time Richard makes Jaw, produces Jaws, he makes more money off Jaws than his father made in his entire motion picture career. Mm-hmm. His father had been compost at that point, it would have driven him nuts. But his father was, you know, already uh, edging towards uh, the gray area. Uh, but that was on the way he could, Daryl could see this kind of thing coming, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but Richard was a fine producer, but there was an unhealthy level of competition. Uh, as Zanuck got older, he became threatened by Richard uh, and and basically tried to uh, first destabilize him within the company. By this time, Richard's running production at Fox and Zanuck is chairman of the board. And, and it turns into this uh, a, 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 a quarrel between father and son handled never directly. I mean, they never really got into it. Uh, in the boardroom kind of thing, but it was done through subsidiaries and, you know, uh, 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 other people in the corporation. And ultimately, uh, Daryl fired his son from the company. Uh, yeah. Zanuck followed him shortly because the company was in bad shape by 1970. Uh, and, but, and by then, as I said, he had dementia and uh, basically couldn't function very well anymore. But it was yeah. a, uh, uh, a re- it actually would make a good... Uh, season of something uh, uh that television show uh with uh uh brian uh 
the, the family, let's say family succession show. What is it? Succession? Mm -hmm. Six, succession. succession. Yeah. yeah right. you, you could make a really good television uh, series, Ryan Murphy style out of the battle for supremacy between Red Daryl and Richard Zanuck. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it is, as you say, it is uh, quasi Shakespearean, the, oh, yeah. the, the struggle there. And, Richard, um, and because of the, because of the tension that grew between them as Richard got more successful and as his father got less able to cope psychologically and, and intellectually as his disease progressed. Uh, I mean, I interviewed Richard Zanuck a couple times and Richard Zanuck's attitude towards his father was deep professional respect and absolutely no emotional coloring whatsoever. It was mm. like, I, I, as I write in the book, he could have been talking about Sam Goldwyn, you know, yeah. oh, what a fine producer, great integrity, blah, 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 blah. But nothing about, and I love my father. No, those were that those sentences never passed. There was no filial feeling, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, it's sad. It's sad. It's always sad yeah, to hear when, when not, something like that. It's not the only time that happened. It's the same thing. <laughs> sure. No, Jack Warner and Jack Warner. Jack Warner sure. fired his son from Warner Brothers. You know, yeah. this was not unusual. These guys had to be alone on top of the mountain. They didn't yeah. really want to share power because they felt instinctively that power shared is power diminished. Yeah, I mean, this this is an interesting thing that, again, comes up over and over in the book is Daryl Zanuck being the the guy who is signing off on every production. He's signing off on all the scripts. He's, you know, uh, you know, he's he's signing off on the the final cuts and all that. And and it's uh, it is there was not a lot of delegation. No, in his reign. No, no. And when he left, he finally in 1956, he said, I need to get away. So he, he quit the job and became an independent producer releasing through Fox. And uh, the studio was absolutely adrift without him because they weren't used to having autonomy uh, uh, spread out amongst the executive producers. Mm -hmm. They weren't used to that. So you had you had a bunch of people who weren't really emotionally or psychologically prepared to take control of the production process because Zanuck had done that by himself. And he suddenly mm -hmm. removed himself uh, in his midlife crisis and the studio got into very bad trouble very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and then he comes back. He comes back for a bit. After and then Cleopatra, kind of after Cleopatra's cost $40 million. <laughs> uh, and it's a terrible, dreadful, dull picture. Uh, hasn't gotten any adherence in the uh, 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 years since it came out. Uh, and the studio is teetering the edge of bankruptcy. They had to sell off most of the back lot uh, to Alcoa uh, to raise money. And uh, yeah, Zanuck came back like Errol Flynn, you know, leading the charge of the Light Brigade. And luckily, uh, the first picture out of the uh, the shoot for the new Zanuck operation was The Sound of Music, which saved the company short term. But it was also probably the single most expensive picture in the history of Hollywood because every studio suddenly thought, oh, this is a business we understand again. We'll make yeah. big, lavish musicals like we used to make 20 years earlier. And yeah. so every studio makes it lines up three or four of these big musicals and every one of them, without exception, drops dead. And suddenly yeah. they're right back where they started. Yeah, including uh, 20th Century Fox with Doctor Doolittle, Dr. which is the Art, one Dr. of the Doolittle. There were several of them, and Columbus yeah. makes Lost Horizon, and uh, MGM makes Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and and it, it was it was they all dropped dead. Yeah. They were all the audience for that picture uh, was simply dying off while they were being shot. All <laughs> the music snuck in under the wire. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's it is interesting. And then, all right, so the the I, the last you know thirty five to forty years of of twentieth century Fox is 
uh, post post uh, Zanuck, and it is it is it is interesting in its own right. I just wanted to talk briefly about the Alan Ladd era huh? because that feels like it it is it's a very short period of time, but it's one that both saves 20th Century Fox and also sows the ultimate seeds of its destruction by creating the kind of Star Wars mm -hmm. universe and Star Wars effect. Can you can you just talk a little bit about that that period and what it what it led to? Alan Ladd Jr. takes over uh, production head duties of Fox uh, in the 70s, mid 70s. And because of his heritage, because he grew up in the business and he understood the business and he came up as an agent and then worked his way up to the status of production head, he did have a very good sense of the overall and he was in tune with the zeitgeist in a way that most studio had simply weren't. He was, in a sense, he was a throwback. Of course, the zeitgeist by the 70s moves a lot faster than the zeitgeist in the 1930s mm -hmm. uh, because of the overall, you know, uh, adrenaline uh, injection into the media. Uh, but he's making, uh, he hired Mel Brooks, does uh, Young Frankenstein. He, you know, uh, he makes a long string of pictures, Turning Point, that are basically uh, pretty serious adult pictures, you know, and they're aimed at, a, at an audience. And on the other end, he also does, uh, he, he, fi he finances this, this uh, weird picture, Star Wars, uh, a throwback to uh, the 30s uh, serials uh, with three actors no one's heard of. But no one thinks it's going to do that well because who's going to go to see a movie with some guy named Harrison Ford and some girl named Carrie Fisher and some guy named Mark Hamill? What of it, you know? Uh, and the thing explodes and it changes George Lucas's life forever. And a lot of people think it ruined his professional life because suddenly, instead of being this little, uh, uh, you know, Bay Area filmmaker with an interesting knack for uh, searching out hidden crevices in the zeitgeist and making American Graffiti or THX 1138, suddenly he's a mogul and mm -hmm. has to keep doing the mogul thing and make and expanding the Star Wars universe. Uh, but of course, it's not a problem for Fox because they're distributing the films, but they don't own the films. All they do is yeah. distribute the films. But still, it, it, it bulks the company up. And Ladd does so well that uh, he, he ends up leaving Fox to start up his own company, the Ladd Company. And just as he'd been on top of the zeitgeist in the middle and, and late 70s, he's out. he loses touch with the zeitgeist uh, in the 80s. And the Ladd Company lasts five or six years and finally goes belly up. Uh, so how do you explain that? Well, you can't. It just Sometimes you catch the wave and sometimes the wave catches you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you know, uh, picked up by uh, Rupert Murdoch when eventually sold to to Disney. And it's there's a weird there's 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 an almost a symmetry to it. Disney buying 20th Century Fox uh, and and not quite merging with it, but certainly uh, absorbing a lot of its properties and, and labels and stuff. Uh, I, I say it's a symmetry, but it's it's it's. It's a it's a weird it's an end. It's an end that always I I'm sorry, I'm rambling now, but whenever I see the the old 20th century logos and how they are now, uh, it's not it's no longer 20th century Fox. It's just 20th century studios. Yeah. It's no longer Fox Searchlight. It's just Searchlight Pictures. Right. I always get a little bit sad. Yeah, I get a little bit sad because it's a it's it's a it's a it is an ending of a uh, a, a real and fairly glorious and glamorous thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a hundred year old. Uh... 100-year-old trademark, too. More than 100. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, Mur Rupert Murdoch never really liked the movie business. He's a newspaper guy, basically. And he likes the fast, fast turnover that you can get in newspapers, the fast turnover you can get in television. 
you know, it's a, it's alive, it's electric. You change it day to day. You you cope with it day to day. And a movie takes a lot of time, a lot yeah. of time. And especially as the movie industry has morphed into fan, uh, basically a, a fan service operation, uh, where they make studios essentially make one kind of picture, a green screen epic with people in spandex for the Chinese market. And if you do well here, that's fine. But essentially, yeah. China can pay for the negative cost. Uh, they kind of lost touch with making medium budget films for adults, which was always the bedrock of the movie business. I mean, you made movies for kids, of course, because kids yeah. do movies more often. But if you look at the at Zanuck's roster of pictures that he would turn out, 30, 40 pictures a year, 10 or 15 of them were for adults. You know, they, 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 a tree grows in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah. Joe Mankiewicz pictures, Letter to Three Wives, or, or All About Eve. All those pictures, bringing Ernst Lubitsch over to Fox, bringing Preston Sturgis over to Fox. Uh, those are those are high end talents. And to his credit, he let Lubitsch be Lubitsch. He didn't try mm -hmm. to impose his own rhythms on uh, Ernst Lubitsch because he adored. He, he was thought Lubitsch was an artist, and he felt the same way about Sturgis. But unfortunately, unfortunately, Sturgis burned out by that time from alcohol and whatever. Uh, and the same thing. He let John Ford be John Ford. He didn't ram John suddenly try to tighten up a John Ford picture into 80 minutes. Yeah. John Ford's movies move like people move, like Henry Fonda walk. There's a certain stately progression there. <laughs> yeah. He's not, Henry Fonda's not running any place, you know? Uh, yeah. So Zanuck would lay off people that, that he thought were on a higher level and let them do what they could do. Uh, but for the rest of the rest of the directors, they were expected to shoot the film the way he wanted it shot. But he never interfered on the set. He would inter he would he would direct the writing of the script. He would direct the editing of the film, but he never went on the set unless there was a catastrophe, unless the production had stopped and the director and the uh, the star were screaming at each other. Then he would be yeah. involved. Other than that, he did he the director had to make the film on his own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. What do you think people should know about either 20th Century Fox or Daryl F. Zanuck or uh, any of any of this that uh, that we didn't touch on here? Well, no, nothing. But the reason the movies are way the way they are now is because the movies were the way they were then. The, what we've seen is more of a de-evolution than an evolution. In mm -hmm. the last, especially in the last 15, 20 years, especially in the last mm -hmm. 20 uh, Zanuck would be stunned uh, to see Fox bought by Disney because when Zanuck was alive, Walt Disney was a niche studio and a small niche studio. It was a boutique operation. Disney would make shorts, animated shorts. They'd make an animated feature every two or three years and they make uh, two or three features a year, live action features. That's it. That was an average. And the reason Disney went into theme parks was because he didn't have the cash flow from the movie business that he needed if he was going to keep the movie business going uh, because he did, he wasn't engaged in mass production. So they opened the theme parks and, and television and that really gave Disney the wherewithal uh, to keep animation going, which was Disney's passion, his first love. Uh, but he also, Zanuck also would have understood that corporations get senile just like people do and mm -hmm. they lose their, their vision of what job one is supposed to be. And so Disney uh, uh, stepped on the gas 30 years ago and, and Fox basically slowly slid until they had a very minor share of, of, of the market. And so they got swallowed. They got swallowed. He would understand that because he understood business very well. But he'd be very saddened to see that it was his company that, that got swallowed.
Yeah. Well, on that on that cheery note, uh, thank you very much for uh, for for joining me today, uh, Mr. Iman. Really appreciate it. It's a great book. Again, the name of the book: Twentieth Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck, and the Creation of the Modern Film Studio. I'll link to it in the email. You can find uh, you can find a find it find it at booksellers everywhere. Um, I picked it up at Barnes and Noble. It's at Amazon. Everywhere you everywhere you can buy books. Um, uh, I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.